This is Bigger Questions with your host, Robert Martin. Welcome to Bigger Questions. Today's big question, what can war teach us? We're asking today's big question to Dr. Natasha Moore. Natasha is a research fellow at the Centre for Public Christianity. She's a speaker, writer and author of several books, including the 2020 Australian Christian Book of the Year for the Love of God. And she joins me now. Natasha, welcome to Bigger Questions. Thanks for having me. Now, Natasha, today's big question is about war. Now, Basil Fawlty from the BBC comedy series Fawlty Towers famously said, don't mention the war. So do you think that we should talk about war even when it's unpleasant or confronting? Mm, I mean, the classic Basil Fawlty, the Fawlty Towers episode, he says don't mention the war while constantly mentioning the war, of course, <laughs> to his German guests. Um, and he does that in a deeply awkward and offensive way. So I definitely think that we should talk about war in all kinds of contexts. What I find really interesting actually about the Second World War in particular is that we almost can't stop mentioning this war. Right. You know, it's kind of like it's quite a long time ago now. Um, we're getting to the end of those generations who actually lived through it are getting thinner and thinner. We don't have that many um, people who fought in the war or who experienced it um, firsthand. But this is the war that we go to for the stories that we tell and it's kind of our default. It's the war. Um, and mm. I think that there are lots of reasons for that, but that's really interesting to me given that there have been many other wars. You know, war is a bit of a constant in human history and human experience. Um, but there's something special about this one that we cannot stop mentioning it a bit like Basil yes. Fawlty. Well, we're going to talk about it today. In fact, that's the focus of today's big question. But we do like to kick off bigger questions with some smaller questions just to get us thinking. Today, we're asking Dr. Natasha Moore about war. So, Natasha, our smaller questions to you today are about war novels. Okay. There's one question and it's multiple choice. Okay. The website shortlist.com assembled a list of 30 of the greatest war novels of all time. Now, which of these novels wasn't on the list? Was it A, the classic Catch-22 by Joseph Heller? Was it B, Men at Arms by the aptly named author Evelyn War? Was it C, the semi-autobiographical Empire of the Sun by G.J. Ballard? Or was it D, Dad's Army by John Burke, inspired by the BBC TV series of the same name? <laughs> so which of those wasn't on the list of the greatest war novels of all time? Well, I certainly hope that it's not Catch-22 because that is truly one of the greatest war novels of all time. Um, I mean, the so the Dad's Army one is a book from a series. I'm, I'm going to go with that one. That's okay, that's snobby. probably a good one to go with. It was inspired by the BBC TV series, um, but it was actually, yes, the answer was actually D, Dad's Army, yes. in fact, unfortunately, was, wasn't one of the greatest <laughs> war novels of all time, according to this list. Maybe others perhaps may mm. disagree. Um, do you think that a novel inspired by Dad's Army would rank as one of literature's greatest works? <laughs> I, my general impression is that um, books inspired by movies rather than the other way around tend not to rank as great literature, but <laughs> it's not impossible. Not impossible. <laughs> impossible. Okay, well... <laughs> Well, Natasha, there's no point fighting you because you passed. You got our smaller questions right. And if we had a live audience <laughs> here today, we'd give you a rapturous applause. So, Natasha, we are talking about war today, but you really don't have any experience of war personally, do you? But you did write an essay for ABC Religion and Ethics, What Stories We Tell About the Second World War Say About Us. So what stimulated your interest in war stories? 
Yeah, that's a really good question. And I'm not totally sure I know the answer, but whatever it is for me, it seems to be the same for like almost everybody else, because you look at kind of the lists of new books out every year, the list of bestsellers, and, um, you know, this is an exaggeration, but it feels as though every second one is set in World War II. Like there's just no end to the stories that we want to tell about this from, you know, um, the tattooist of Auschwitz to just read a murder mystery that's set in the Blitz. Um, You can kind of have any sort of novel that is set in any theatre of this, what really was this world war um, that, you know, exploded, the world kind of imploded in the middle of the 20th century. Mm. So I, you know, I do love a good World War II story. Um, Mm -hmm. I think partly because, partly because there is so much to it. You know, one of my favourites is called Everyone Brave is Forgiven by Chris Cleave, brilliantly written, and it's set, you know, I kind of go, I know about World War II. I've read all this stuff about it. I studied it at school. Um, I think I know this story. But actually there are just so many stories. So Everyone Brave is Forgiven is set in the London Blitz and also kind of in the siege of Malta, which I didn't know Mm -hmm. anything about at all. So just the sheer scale of what so many millions and millions of people went through and how different their experiences Mm. were from each other and that sense of the whole world going through something, you know, the whole world. But to a great extent, if anything does ever happen to the whole world at the same time, this would be kind of an example of that. So I think just that scale is quite engaging for Mm. us. But you didn't consider Dad's Army as one of the stories that you felt you needed to think about or engage or enjoy? <laughs> it's, a, it's a serious gap in my knowledge. You know? <laughs> Actually, I've, I don't recall ever really seeing Dad's Army, so sorry. Is that very shocking? <laughs> it's classic classic comedy, but uh, which is an interesting conversation in its own right about the, why, why we make jokes about war, how that sort of impacts our reflections on war as well. But in this shortlist, the authors of this shortlist uh, reflection that we had in our smaller question said, though, that said wars, battles and struggles have provided novelist with a cavalcade of inspiration for grand works. And so that really resonates with your experience, I suppose, of what you've done when you've read all these books, I suppose, about the Second World War. Yeah. And I think it feeds something, maybe it it speaks to a bunch of our anxieties about our own individual lives and our own time in history Mm. and our place in society. That, you know, World War II is this terrible, terrible disaster that you can only look back on and wish that it had not happened. Um, You know, just kind of the death, particularly the Holocaust being embedded in that, Mm. just it's our, it's the purest example we have of just suffering and injustice and horror of what humans can do to other humans. Um, So uh, it does loom large in our imagination. But I think that it also kind of reflects to us this sense of, well, if if you're going through that, then that's something that obviously matters. Um, it's obviously like it demands a lot of you, like you have to rise to some kind of challenge maybe, like if you're living through the Blitz and the whole kind of keep calm, carry on and the Blitz spirit, um, those kinds of uh like experiences and and the way that we look back on them now, I think that sort of speaks to us in our sense of like, well, um, for the most part, um, living in the West over the last few decades you kind of go it's by comparison a very peaceful prosperous um life that we Mm. lead we can talk about you know how covid has sort of changed that um or challenged that 
Um, but that sense of like, well, our, our lives are very comfortable, but are they meaningful? Are we part of something bigger? Um, and I think World War II stories really get at that for us, that we go, these people are kind of called to something that they didn't want and that's terrible, but that also draws out of them something they didn't know was in them potentially, at least in a lot of the novels, a lot of the stories and a lot of the heroic kind of histories that we tell. But why World War II in particular and not other wars from um, ancient history or more and other modern history wars? Because, mm. I mean, the other the obvious one to compare it to is the First World War, um, mm. which we do know about um, and care about, I think, but we don't tell nearly as many stories about it. And I think it's because there are ways in which World War I is just really painful to contemplate um, because it feels so futile. Um, it's sort of, you know, not that clear why it happened or needed to happen. Um, it's there's so much waste. Um, it's so much kind of repetition, you know, it's just these years of trench warfare, war of attrition. Mm. And that just, that doesn't feel meaningful. I think when Mm. we look back on it, um, it's hard to assign meaning to the, to this kind of conflict. Um, whereas the second world war, I think the whole, um, Nazi thing, the Hitler thing, the Holocaust thing, um, we have this sense of like embodiment of evil. It's very Mm. clear, you know, there's no one really you could ask who would be like, oh, there's, you know, merit on both sides and, you know, like Mm. there is an an aggressor and we have, you know, to the extent that you can in messy human history, we have good guys, we have bad guys. And I think we find that really kind of compelling and satisfying as a story to tell. That's that's true of a lot of the kinds of stories, the kinds of movies we make, superhero movies, all the rest of it. We want to have here's the good guys and here's the bad guys and the good mm. guys win. And therefore you don't have to, there's a sense in which you almost don't have to enter into some of the moral complexity there because you can be a bit like, particularly if you're from, um, Australia or Britain or the US or, um, mm. you know, parts of bit... Western Europe, you can go, we won the war and we were the good guys. However complicated yeah. that is when you actually drill down into the history, there's yeah. a sense in which that is accurate um, in a way mm. that it isn't a lot of other wars. So you're saying that there is, you know, a primary school perspective, there's goodies and baddies, so to speak, uh, and that's clear in the Second World War. But what does that reveal about us then? I think it reveals um, a few things, one of which is that we have this deep instinct that evil is a real thing um, and there isn't a lot of outlet for that, I think, in the ways that we engage with you know, our own kind of time and place and each other. Uh, and to some extent that's a good thing in that we have quite a, a therapeutic view of wrongdoing that people do now. And, you know, we try to understand when people do wrong things, what's going on for them psychologically, um, what have what kind of trauma have they experienced, how has that influenced um, how they act and what they're able or unable to uh, do. And there's a compassion to that and a curiosity to that that I think is good and admirable. So, you know, we, we, we do care about moral complexity, I think. We want to say... Um, oh, it's not, it's never as simple as kind of good guys and bad guys. And, you know, to a great extent, that's true. And this is something that um, the Bible would certainly teach us that actually everybody is a bad guy and everybody's a good guy, Um, Mm. that we all have both in us to a very 
profound extent. And so you can't actually be like, them over there, they're bad. Us over here, we're all right. That the Bible would say actually we're all um, pretty messed up and we all do a lot of harm. Um, Mm. And yet there's also a sense in which evil is real and active in the world and not okay. Like you can't just explain that away, the very real harm that we do to each other. And there's a scale to that and we're all implicated in it. But it's also not just a kind of cause and effect, this terrible thing happened to you and now you're carrying that out on somebody else and we can, you know, explain away all the loose ends by medical or psychological means, Mm. that there's a deep moral element to this and that there are some things that we really want to say that is just evil. Um, Mm. And if we have trouble saying that within our own context, then the Second World War in particular I think offers us a forum for that to be like, look, okay, here, you can see on the screen of history projected up there, this is what evil looks like. Humans have done this to each other Mm. um, and we need to take that into account actually in how we think about humans, including ourselves today. But to what extent is that uh, the result of evil in humans or is it a result of an evil system? Because some novels describe evil people and some describe others, you know, as involved in an evil system, for example, you know, the Nazi regime, for example. So is there a difference there? If we are going to engage, you know, uh, honestly and fearlessly with what happens in the Second World War, I think that means that we have to ask questions about, you know, well, is evil just there are particular people who are beyond the pale? Is it, Mm. oh, well, it's the system and it wasn't really people's fault? And it's more complicated than both of those things. Um, You know, I read this really interesting interview with a kind of 100-year-old woman um, who worked for, I think it was um, was either Hermann Goring or Joseph Goebbels, uh, was kind of a secretary uh, in that department. And she was saying, you know, people now imagine that they would have resisted. And she's like, I appreciate that they believe that, but also they wouldn't have. Um, you know, I was there. It was like, and, and you look at kind of the numbers, very few people, we, we kind of look back and go, I agree with Dietrich Bonhoeffer who stood up within Germany to the Nazi regime. And I think he was right. And therefore I identify with human history, but there's absolutely no indication from, you know, my own life and engagement with politics and my own levels of courage that I would be Bonhoeffer um, Mm. rather than the vast majority of people who kind of kept their heads down or, you know, kind of got drawn in and did what they had to do to survive. Um, And what does that do to our neat categories of good and evil? Mm. It kind of really messes them up. Like what is that complicity? These are people who might have led completely normal, what we would think of as pretty harmless, maybe even good lives contributing to society in a different context, but in this context actually did so much harm or were complicit in so much harm and evil. I suppose that touches on the the human condition perhaps and it maybe reveals some uncomfortable things about ourselves. Yeah, and I think if our World War II stories are not making us uncomfortable, then we need some different ones Um, because they are, there's something, even though they are kind of horrifying um, in some ways, they're also really comforting. They affirm our kind of moral certainties and our sense of being the good guys and being on the side of good and not evil and... I think that if that's all we get from World War II, then we're not really engaging either with what actually happened and people's real experience of it or with 
what it really has to show us about human nature um, and human society and kind of the realities of history and all that kind of thing. Mm, mm. So we've reflected on the good versus evil. This um, World War II stories help us to understand something about, about ourselves and the reflection on good and evil. But you also mentioned earlier about the search for meaning as well, that you, that is a, an element of which war stories can help us find. Can you unpack that a bit more? There's a philosopher who talks about uh, how kind of the focus of the modern self is diminished, that people used to kind of um, see themselves as part of something much bigger, uh, so part of the people of God, for example. So, you know, there was definitely a larger reality and you're kind of a piece, you have a place within that. Um, and then, you know, with the rise of kind of the secular nation state um, and uh, kind of the growth of secularism in some respects, this is a very kind of <laughs> overview, that often shrinks to kind of the nation um, or the state. Uh, and that's a that's a smaller thing than a transcendent God, but it's still quite a big thing in terms of taking up our attentions and our focus and our um, where we put meaning in life, what we direct our energies to. And that actually as we've gone along into the 21st century, it's largely gone from God to nation to the self and we locate our meaning and we have to kind of create our own meaning in the individual self. And actually that's a lot of, like to some extent that's been freeing for people um, and you think about the harms of nationalism and go, well, maybe in some ways that's an improvement. But also it's so much um, pressure to put on the individual to kind of create your own persona, to create your own meaning in life. It sounds freeing, but it actually ends up being quite um, overwhelming in a lot of ways. Uh, and I think that actually the way humans function and flourish best is as part of something bigger than ourselves. Um, I think mm. that's because that's how we're created, that God made us that way because he did create us to be part of um, a larger community and a larger purpose, like his purpose and will for his creation. And therefore there's something missing for us when we're disconnected from that. Mm. Um, and I think the way that we look at the Second World War, um, you know, it's like just one example of that, but it is an example of being caught up in something bigger and depending on which stories you're telling. So Catch-22, everything is absurd. It doesn't feel meaningful. Um, if it's a Holocaust um, uh, memoir, things don't feel meaningful um, because they're so uh, horrific. Um, but if you have, um, you know, kind of resistance stories or uh, blitz stories, uh, those kinds of things, um, people do have a sense of like, well, I'm part of a larger effort towards something worthwhile. Um, this demands my energies. It's taxing. It requires something of me. Am I equal to the task? Um, and, you know, everybody wants the war to be over, but also, and and you people report this um, afterwards that they felt a bit, um, some people felt adrift after the war yeah. because for so long they'd kind of been directed towards this goal that was undoubtedly good and needed um, and that there's something in that in terms of community and in terms of feeling important and feeling needed that in peacetime, um, if we mm. don't feel ourselves to be part of a bigger story in peacetime, we struggle with that, I think. Mm. So, Natasha, you've outlined a couple of the human longings, perhaps, that these war stories reveal about us, that there's a, a reflection on there's the good and evil, uh, and that dynamism between those can be at times uh, complex. There's also a yearning to be a part of a bigger story, something bigger. But the third point you make is about that these stories must be told. So why is that? 
they feel like something that we have a responsibility to do. Um, We have a responsibility to the people who suffered through this horrific episode of history, a responsibility to remember them and to recognise what they went through and that, you know, there's there's a sense in which that makes absolutely no difference to them. These people are not alive. Either they died at the time or they've died since it, we don't see what material difference it could make to them if we forget mm. completely or remember in great detail. But instinctively, I think in terms of justice, um, obviously in terms of, you know, we, we want to not repeat the past <laughs> to the extent that we can pull that off, but also it feels as though we owe it to the victims, we owe it to those who suffered to remember them and to recognise their suffering. Um, and I think that there's something deeply theological in that, um, that we we don't want people's experience and particularly people's um, suffering and grief and sadness, we don't want that to just disappear, um, to be forgotten and ignored and never acknowledged, that we want that to be recognised. Um, and I think at its most complete, where that impulse finds its fulfilment is in actually the belief in an omniscient and a completely just God who, Mm. um, you know, Jesus talks about how uh, not a sparrow falls to the ground, um, but God knows about it. Every hair of your head is numbered. Like he knows and he does not forget. He does not sleep. He does not slumber. um, Mm. That actually nothing that you go through is missed by him Mm. um, and no injustice will be ignored by him. And there's something very challenging about that, but also very comforting because we do think that human experience and human suffering matters, um, that injustice matters, that the individual person matters. And I think our sense of telling these stories is almost an echo of that, um, wanting that omniscience, that even if people Mm -hmm. no longer believe in a God for whom nothing slips through the cracks, well, then maybe we need to do it. We need to take on that responsibility. Uh, in the final book of the Bible, in Revelation, there's a war described in Revelation 19:11, where the author John writes in metaphorical language about the future. He says, I saw heaven standing open and there before me was a white horse whose rider is called Faithful and True. With justice, he judges and wages war. So how do you think that this war described here in Revelation with its metaphorical language and so on, connects with the longings and the stories that we've read about World War II. There's definitely a picture there of um, ultimately justice is not going to be brought about by the wars that humans wage against each other, um, but that God himself is ultimately going to judge. Um, He's going to bring an end to injustice and suffering and pain um, of every kind. And that that is meant to be comforting um, to people now and not in a kind of, oh, therefore don't worry about anything kind of way, Um, that actually that should underpin, I think, our work towards justice and peace now. And that there's a paradoxical sense in which if you think it's all on you, that the only justice and peace that we're ever going to have in the world is the one that we bring about ourselves, then that can be quite a a crushing burden. Um, But to go, well, I can work in imperfect and in partial ways for justice and peace now and know that there's going to be, you know, the mess and the complications and um, the kind of 
counterproductive ways that that works out, that it's going to be messy. Um, I can work for that knowing that um, what I'm doing matters because there's a God who guarantees that peace and justice and that what I do will ultimately be caught up in a perfect peace and justice. Um, mm. And there's something, yeah, deeply um, reassuring and um, uh, conducing to kind of a quiet perseverance and confidence in the efforts that we make towards peace um, and towards justice. Mm. So in some ways, maybe these stories that you've read about World War II and their longings for justice and for memory and for meaning, are perhaps then this is this picture in Revelation gives a bit of a picture that actually there's a, there's a fulfillment, there's actually a purpose for these places. This, these longings are actually are connected with our humanity in some way. Yeah, I definitely agree with that. I think that these are things that we're not always great at talking about um, uh, in 21st century secular Australia or Western cultures, um, that we struggle to articulate things about good and evil or about um, larger meaning and purpose um, or about, you know, ultimate justice. Um, we don't super have the language for that. And World War II gives us um, a forum for that and uh, kind of a, a place to meet to kind of chat about those things that feel a bit alien to us but also that we really yearn for and yearn to understand. Um, but, yeah, I think ultimately those are pointers to a reality um, that all of human experience and history will point to because we're humans. Um, uh, but, that yeah, I think the, the Bible's picture of what the human heart is like um, and the trajectory of human history and where we're actually, where we've come from and where we're headed um, that that picture certainly makes sense of what appeals to us um, about World War II narratives um, and actually, you know, what that says about who we are, what will make us uh, flourish, what will fulfil us, what we need, all that kind of thing. Mm. So, Natasha, what can war teach us? Is that it reminds us that we're mortal, that we're going to die and leads us to think about, okay, well, what is life really about? And do I know what it's about? And is there, do I have a maker and am I ready to meet my maker? Um, so actually what war has to teach us is that life is not um, in our control, that we are mortal, um, that we're subject to the forces around us um, and that, you know, Life is about more than just our kind of comfort and control. Um, I think that those are difficult but important lessons, lessons we can kind of learn other ways as well, but that war really kind of shoves in our face, I guess. Let me leave you with some of the Bible's reflections on this big question, what can war teach us? From Revelation 19.11, I saw heaven standing open and there before me was a white horse whose rider is called Faithful and True. With justice, he judges and wages war. I look forward to you joining us next time for Bigger Questions. Thanks very much to our guest today, Dr. Natasha Moore. Thanks. Enjoy Bigger Questions? You can help us keep asking them for as little as $1 a podcast. Support the show. Go to patreon.com slash biggerquestions.